We are not liberals, and we are not conservatives. We are Ohioans. We are Buckeyes. Together. John Kasich declares a new day. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Karen Kastler, Statehouse Bureau Chief for Ohio Public Radio and TV. Julie Carr-Smythe, Statehouse Correspondent for the Associated Press. Terry Casey, Republican Strategist. And Sandy Tice, Democratic Strategist. Ohio's 69th governor says put on a seatbelt and get ready for an exciting time. John Kasich took the oaths of office this week, one at midnight, the second at noon on his first day in office. The new governor humbly thanked his family and his friends. He praised God, and he says his inauguration is our inauguration. I I want everyone to understand that I hope you can realize we accept this responsibility together. I have a sense that across Ohio, people know we have a challenge. So today, we're all inaugurated into a better day. The new governor vowed not to cater to special interest, his own self-interest, only to be a good public servant. My only purpose, my only passion in all of this has been to lift Ohio, to make us competitive again, and to create jobs for our families, because when our families have jobs, they have hope. They have dreams and they have strength. Karen Castle, this was our first look at John Kasich as governor. What did you think of his speech in his first day? I think his speech, we weren't ever going to get any major policy points here. I don't think we were going to get a big layout of how he was going to plug this $8 billion to $10 billion hole in the budget. I think what he was trying to do was to set a tone and uh, kind of start a a little bit of an inspiration here. I, he knows he's got a lot of work ahead of him. He knows it's going to be challenging. He knows there are going to be a lot of things that are not going to be very fun about this budget. And that's why you kept hearing these things about teamwork and working together. You're all inaugurated. I think the idea was to bring everybody on board with this project that he's got to get done that is not going to be easy to do. And on the evening of the inaugural, he had the Senate Democrat leader uh, get up on the stage and say very nice things about working together. Uh, and then Wednesday he went up to Detroit, had the president of Ohio State, the president of the University of Toledo, so clearly jobs is the number one thing he's working on. And in between that, he did have a legislative luncheon where he met with uh, the House leaders and the Senate leaders and actually all the lawmakers in the State House and talked a little bit more about the budget and a little bit more about the idea of teamwork and working together. Sandy, Inter- oh, go ahead, Julie. I was just going to say, interestingly, at that luncheon, Uh, One of the Republican leaders, the new Senate president, Tom Niehaus, did stand up and tell his members, you know, we don't have to buy all this hook, line, and sinker. Uh, We need to be our own branch of government. And uh, we saw a little bit of that uh, with Ted Strickland as he tried to coordinate with House Democrats, and it didn't always work. And it'll be interesting to watch the Republicans in the legislature work with Kasich. Sandy, do you think that how long will the honeymoon last, if there is even a honeymoon? Um, I don't think there there's going to be much of a honeymoon, and I think Karen's right about trying to set a tone. I think part of that was because one of his first famous comments after the election was to get on the bus or you'll get run over by the bus, and a lot of people thought that that was a little 
too much uh, chutzpah and steroids for a guy who didn't get 50% of the vote. Well, Sandy, the last time we were together at this table, you predicted Strickland was going to win by four. <laughs> you were wrong on that. And I was at the luncheon where he said about getting on the bus. That message was aimed at the lobbyists and some of these greedy lobbyists who only look at being pigs at the trough and saying you aren't going to be able to get what you want because we don't have the money. I think it was aimed at a broader audience than that. He'd got a lot of grief over it and I think particularly in this economic climate everybody needs to put their thinking caps on and work together. And I do think that I've heard him say it now in at least three different places in different ways. He's not backing off his very strong message to those. He said it again yesterday in his health care announcement that basically the um, advocates for health care also need to understand. But he did open that I event, interestingly enough, by saying, you know, I know I've been tough on special interests, but special interests do have their role. So I think he's beginning, even within a few days in office, to realize that. And across the country, two famous names, Jerry Brown in California, uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York, both of them started out their governorships being pretty clear in terms of there's got to be cuts. In fact, New York, no tax increases. Public employees can't expect to get a better deal than what the taxpayers are getting. So it isn't just in Ohio. It's across the nation and some top Democrat names that are saying it's a different day. And we, unlike the federal government, state government doesn't have a printing press where they can just run up the deficits. Uh, carte blanche trillions of dollars has happened at the national level. Terry, I want to ask you, we heard it several times during the campaign where he referred to state employees as folks who are eating at the public trough. Yet his cabinet members, the budget for this cabinet is lower than what Ted Strickland had, but all of his top advisors are making six, fig six figures. Some have, some of those pay levels have increased by 25, even 40 percent. How do you reconcile the public trough comments with those salaries? Well, in some cases, to recruit people and keep people and work them the way you're going to work them, because these aren't people who are going to work a normal 40-hour day, you've got to pay them more. And uh, one of the things in the cabinet, I thought the dispatch did a very good job last Friday in noting significantly how far ahead Kasich is in naming his cabinet, getting them in place. And I think right now there's a couple more still to be announced, but he's got 23 of the 24 in place. And most governors in the past have never even been close to that. But if you're going to get good people and keep them, uh, you've got to pay some competitive wages. I, I don't buy it that his overall staff salary is going to be lower. Um, one of the famous things we've seen other governors do is hide people in agencies. Um, and you'll remember when Dick Celeste was governor, he was bragging about how small the size of his payroll was. And then over time, the reporter started finding people who were really working for the governor's office at the Department of Development or over at ODOT or in some other agency. Under the Kasich plan, there's one legal counsel. I don't believe that. I don't believe the governor of the seventh largest state can get by with one legal counsel. He's got an attorney general. Yeah, but, but the sentence commutation stuff alone is a huge, massive undertaking, plus the other just day-to-day -day legal issues that arise in a complicated place like that. And we've heard that uh, the issue that he's pulling people in from the private sector, and there have been plenty of people pulled in uh, by the Strickland administration from other places that, you know, took these public sector level salaries. Uh, the 170000 he's paying his chief of staff is what Obama is paying his chief of staff. So in terms of workload, I don't know that, you know. But that guy's a millionaire with uh, lots of J.P. Morgan stock. That's uh, true. And we did get the uh, the, the rich uh, venture capitalist who's going to work for a dollar within <laughs> the same week. So Real quickly, the other th 
thing has come up. It came up soon after the election when he started naming folks was a lack of diversity. Well, now we're a month in. Mostly, of the, most of the cabinet positions are filled. Still, not one person of color in this administration at a top level. Well, part of it depends on how you define diversity. I mean, his chief of staff is woman. You look at some of the different members, the chairman of the inaugural committee. There's like three, three, four women, if you count Mary Taylor. Well, but, but there's, you know, part of it is do you establish quotas and pick people based on that or do you look for the best qualified people? And the other reality is there are a number of people that they talk to about cabinet positions who said, hey, I'm making two to three times as much at this law firm, this private sector. I like you, but I can't afford to take the pay cut. The inspector, real quick, the inspector general purge, if you will, they, half of the people who worked in that office got let go by the new inspector general. What's going on there? That is, it's very unusual that that office is supposed to be insulated um, from these kind of political shifts. It's not like these other agencies where you see a lot of goodbye letters and hello letters this week. Um, but I think that what's happening is maybe they wanted a, a fresh start there, um, but it, it looks as if somebody appointed by Kasich might be bringing in folks who who might be a little friendlier to his appointee. Actually, I saw that a little bit differently. Um, Tom Charles, the former inspector general, uh, was kind of a lightning rod for, for controversy. And one of the complaints about him was that when he investigated the highway patrol where he used to work, he treated those people more leniently than any other normal mortal who he investigated. And I think this new guy didn't want to deal with any of that baggage. And I'm sure in the process he swept out some good people, but the fact that John Kasich seemed to have been caught by surprise by that, and so did Tom Charles, I thought was a good sign that maybe we're not gonna have to deal with those controversies in the future. And the Inspector General is independent. He's, I mean, he's independent, He's yeah. appointed by the governor, but after that, it's, he's, he's on his own. Yeah. Okay, let's get to our next topic. In the wake of last <coughs> week's Tucson, Arizona shootings, Governor Kasich and other lawmakers from Ohio joined calls for greater civility in, pol in politics. Kasich told lawmakers they must work together for the good of the state. Democrats said, sure thing, but let's see details of the state budget first. Sandy, how would you rate the civility level of politics here in Ohio? I think it's pretty bad. Um, it's always been bad because you have two parties who are adversarials. Every now and then, though, there have been catastrophes in Ohio, like the home state savings crisis, where the two parties have worked together and really done good things for the people. <clears throat> you don't see that very often anymore. Um, and I was pretty surprised by people who blame Sarah Palin for what happened. This guy's clearly mentally ill. The law doesn't like crazy people. The budget doesn't like them either. But I think um, all these m metaphors, these military metaphors and stuff are kind of ridiculous, and they should stop. I'm going to have to partly agree with Sandy oh, on no. that, but I did want to bring <laughs> along, this is a Barra Coast soap that I used as a prop uh, back in October when I did debate with Chris Redfern, and that was after he had his little potty mouth thing with the F-bomb <laughs> on TV, but Chris Redfern on Wednesday he opens up with an email to raise money, nastily attacking Kasich. He took his oath in the dark of the night, and he's going to cut this, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. <laughs> I mean, it was a real vicious attack thing, but somebody ought to explain to Chris Redfern that the media doesn't take him very serious on some of these over-the-top things. But he should have listened to President Obama and what he said on the very same day about we need more civility. It was a great speech. It really was. Yes. Where, 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 healing. where is the top so we don't go over it? 
I mean, a fundraising letter to Democrats on the day that the, your opposing, opposing party got, inaugurates their governor is a great, if you're raising money, that's a great opportunity. Well, but at least if you're going to put out an email, tell the facts, and don't get so facts. nasty and over the top. <laughs> Those well, facts, think, Terry. We, we're looking for civility, not facts. <laughs> One step at a time. I think you've seen the... the the line be crossed in advertising. I mean, if you look at some of the legislative uh, nasty campaigns that we've had, taking personal issues and, and using them against people, you know, divorces and children and um, misinformation, untruths. I think, for me as a journalist, those are the areas where it's just unacceptable. Well, and how much money did we see being spent by both parties in this last election campaign on ads that people kept saying they didn't like, that they thought were too negative? But negative ads win elections. That's why they're on the air. If, if they didn't win elections, they wouldn't be wasting their money this way. Well, but in some cases, they don't work. I mean, Ted Strickland started the night of the primary in May with negative, negative ads for a couple months. It didn't really move and didn't help him that it much. It moved the numbers, Terry. Oh, did it? <laughs> yes, okay. it did. Well, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Did Strickland win or did Casey win? But, I mean, win? there was a wider gap. Yeah. Oh. But if he had gone perhaps positive after going negative, it might have helped. I think Sharon Engel in Nevada, <clears throat> that negative ad probably didn't help her where she portrayed immigrants as thugs, and that didn't help. But we haven't seen those types of ads here as much as we've seen them in other states, correct? Or am I being naive? I well, think Julie's right. We've seen them in the legislative races, okay. and the mail is where it really gets oh, outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. The mail is really over the top, but I did a program on Inauguration Day with Paul Beck, respected OSU professor, and he correctly made the point when we were doing the show. You know, you go back to 1800, Jefferson versus <laughs> Adams. I mean, it was really tough. So there's some degree of American tradition the people are not shy in what they say, but the public's pretty good at sorting it out. And now it's spread so fast, yeah. too. I mean, you can send an email to somebody, and you get it, and you get it, and mm -hmm. suddenly it's blown up all over the place. And whether it's true or not, sometimes doesn't seem to matter. Um, you saw that with the, with the Ted Williams video. I mean, it's aside from politics, yeah. but it just stuff just spreads. The homeless person who had the great voice, it just spreads like wildfire. You didn't have Fox News on uh, Adams versus Jefferson back then. Which side were they on at that? <laughs> well, or CNBC. Uh, I'm sure Oberman and Gets whoever confusing. would uh, have things to say. All right. Let's get to our third topic. One of the first things the Republican Ohio House did was to propose a bill to do away with the state's estate tax. That's the tax that affects larger estates, ones that total at least $338,000 and above. Heirs must pay about a 7% tax. But here's the rub. 80% of the revenue generated by this tax goes to local governments, and that amounts to about $231 million. Julie Carswyth, how many Ohioans are paying this tax? It's not a whole lot, is it? It isn't. It's a small fraction. I don't know the exact number, but I think that um, uh, it it is a, a teeny bit of the budget, maybe, is it 2%, something like that? Yeah, but I think that. in Ohio, the general fund of the state, it's 60 million out of basically 50 billion. And sadly, on the inheritance tax, it's not really distributed equally because some suburbs, like Upper Arlington, they don't even use it for general operations because it fluctuates so much. And more and more people are discovering they can get around the estate tax if you do proper planning and or you move to Florida, and that's one of the reasons why they want to repeal it. It's not really distributed very fairly around Ohio, and it's so 
uh, a lot of townships, communities, they use it for one-time capital purposes because they can't depend on it year to year. And the flip side, though, is you don't find a lot of studies really bearing out the Republican point of view that it drives people out of the state. Um, we've been looking at it a lot this week, and um, you know there there isn't really good research that is showing a mass exodus of people because of the estate tax, which has been sort of what the the proponents say. So I think that this these two sides of it will be the issue probably at the state house. But my sense is an early prediction. I mean, the estate tax is going to be gone, and part of it is wealthy people when they move to Florida, they move to another state. They don't fill out a census form and said I left the state because of this, but there's a lot of people who've been big contributors in this community afraid to spend too much time here and or write too many charitable contributions because they're afraid it'll be used against them to say, well, you really haven't left the state, you're really back here and they don't want to get hit with the but taxes. But wouldn't they go to Florida anyway? Well, <laughs> they can be in Florida, but it's how much time you spend there and then they look at, do you still have business interests? Are you making charitable contributions? Uh, it's a thing that sent people out of Ohio. We talked to a tax attorney who said that he hasn't seen the exodus among his clients. And he says actually that he has clients that have two homes, one in Florida, one here in Ohio, and they're not even moving their residency to Florida to escape the estate tax. Well, the Buckeye Institute is a conservative think tank. You know, you would think it would be part of the Republican apparatus, and they've come out and said all we're going to see is they call this rearranging the decks on the Titanic. If you're going to take away this revenue from local government, local government's going to find a way to get more revenue from their local people. And that's why we have a high ranking in that tax foundation study. Our state taxes are pretty good, but when you add our overall tax burden in, it's high. And wouldn't we just be doing the same thing? Wouldn't I'm we be raising? If, if we reform collective bargaining and some of the other onuses put on local governments, like the mayor of Cleveland's excited because Kasich wants to do some things to make it easier for Cleveland to contract with suburbs, collaborate, save money on some services. But isn't that kind of what you're talking about, Sandy, this idea of cut it at the state level, it trickles down to the local level. Absolutely. We keep hearing local communities talk about that that's a real danger here, that yes, you can cut the state budget this way, but then local communities are going to have to raise taxes on their people at the local level. And to hear that from the Buckeye Institute, I thought was pretty telling. Does, does this, could this, does it really just affect the affluent? I mean, if say you have a $250,000 home, and it's paid off when you die. And you have $100,000 in a 401k, you're at that $340,000 level, and you, your taxes start kicking in there. So it's not necessarily just the ultra, ultra rich. Well, I think for farmers, too, the, there was the idea of farmers uh, may not necessarily have a lot of cash, but their land is worth a lot of money. Right, and that's one of the things Channel 4 did the story this week, Patrick Preston, and noted that a lot of the farmers are hit more than average because they have so many assets that way. So why not raise the limit? Instead of 340, why not a million? Well, that's one of the points. Ohio's limit is among the lowest in the nation. Uh, so there's a number of things they could look at. But my sense is the, the death tax is dead, and it'll get buried in the next six months. Well, and I think there was a move even before this General yeah. Assembly to try to even put it on the ballot. So if the legislators don't kill it, perhaps there is this move that might uh, try to put it before voters. Well, and to answer your question, Mike, I think this gives... Kasich and our new House Speaker Bill Batchelder, a, a, you know, a quick and easy victory. They're on the same page on this. They can say they cut a tax. They can campaign on that. And uh, as we're all saying, it's not a huge hit for the budget. But Tom Niehaus, did I read it incorrectly, or he was 
all in on this. He said that we're going to look at it, but there's no guarantees that well, the Senate it, will go along with it. But this. in some ways, with the diversity of his Senate caucus, with new members coming this past week, there'll probably be some more new ones to come. Uh, I think Tom Niehaus just has a more reserved way in which he comments on those things. But I think if you did a little poll of their 23 members, you'd find there's a lot of support in the Senate as well as the House to do away with it. That tax attorney did admit that one of the people who is one of the segments of our population is going to be hurt by this are tax attorneys and estate planners. <laughs> well, that's a great reason to be for it. Let's get to our the fourth topic. Nearly 30% of the Columbus City Council is brand new, and voters had nothing to do with it. This week, the five sitting city council members picked their new colleagues, Michelle Mills and Zachary Klein. Mills is president of the St. Stephen's Community House. Klein worked for Vice President Joe Biden and former Attorney General Richard Cordray. And we have a Republican opponent for Mayor Coleman, who is seeking his fourth term. Earl Smith is a retired police sergeant. We in the media are very familiar with him. He was a spokesman for the police department for several years. Terry Casey, Earl Smith, good guy, famous name. Not a whole lot of political experience. Is well, he a sacrificial lamb or does he have a chance? Well, he brings up the key issue of when Mayor Coleman wanted the city income tax increased by 25% and they got it by voters in August, the promise was we're going to put all this money into police and fire. And the question is, have they really put all the money promised? Have they made the other reforms? So clearly people are concerned about crime in this community. And Mayor Coleman still loves to, uh, you know, spend three and a half million out on the east side for this housing bailout project. There's a lot of things that they've been spending money on that's different than the basics of arresting the crooks, putting out the fires, patching the streets, and picking up the trash. And people think you ought to focus first and foremost on the basics. Coleman hasn't always been focused that way. No other Republicans. Jeanette Bradley was, her name always comes up as a possible person to run against Mayor Coleman. I Nobody think you were right. He is the sacrificial lamb. You're going to have a civil campaign. I don't think there's a won't that be nice? I mean, they've actually said nice things about each other yeah. right out of the box. And <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I don't know where he stands on the income tax hike. We haven't asked him yet. But as a member of the police department, you had to figure he was in favor of raising the income tax. And that could have been a very defining mm -hmm. issue for Republicans. But the whole police thing, I mean, this drop program is going to play out in this coming year. And people are going to say, who dreamed up this drop program? Because it's going to be very expensive to the taxpayers. It's going to be very difficult in terms of getting all the police that we need to replace them. Uh, there's really some problems in police and fire. Uh, if you don't believe me, ask the FOP president because they feel they've been shortchanged. Their name was used to pass the tax hike, but they don't feel they've really got the share of the money has not been put into that area. Right, and I do think Terry's right that probably as a person positioned within the safety forces, that's a good person to run against really any mayor because they're going to have that intimate knowledge of, of uh, one of the things that people, it's a hot button with everyone. I just remember sitting at a Columbus Metropolitan Club forum uh, with Buck Reinhardt and uh, he was predicting, somebody actually asked him, is there ever going to be a Republican mayor of Columbus again? And he said no. So <laughs> I just keep thinking back to that going, you know, what chances does Earl Smith have? But then again, Buck Reinhardt could be wrong. Who knows? So well, what are the chances, Terry, of the, of the Republicans ever well, getting back well, in the mayor's I remember office? in 1971, uh, Tom Moody ran against Mayor Sensenbrenner and Sensenbrenner had been in for 14 years and people viewed him as unbeatable. Uh, but Tom Moody won by about 900 votes. Now it was helped 
because 1971, I'm dating myself, and I was very young then. <laughs> uh, that was the year, the first time 18-year-olds got to vote, and that very much helped things, and a lot of people on campus were kind of tired of Sensenbrenner and some of the City Hall things. But change happens. I mean, who would have believed Barack Obama would be elected president? Everyone thought it was going to be Hillary. Mm -hmm. And who would believe we'd have had the big Republican sweep we had in 2010? So you're, so you're here to support a 4% win by Earl. <laughs> well, well I, I think Earl, Earl Smith would be happy with 1%. Uh, a, a is that win, your prediction? A win is a win, and whether it's 2% or 20%, uh, I'd rather be on the winning side than the losing side. There were rumors that you were going to run. Rumors well, that I was going to run? They were mayor. not that desperate, but I do live in Columbus. <laughs> were you ever asked? Uh, people have mentioned it, and then I say, I thought you were my friend. <laughs> Well, Michael Daniels, who was a candidate for uh, city council, he was he's on our panel here, and he didn't make it because of the appointees. But anyway, that's a topic for another day. Let's get to our <laughs> final off-the-record parting shots. Sandy Teich, you're up first. Um, new speaker Bill Batchelder is going to show his independent streak and his pro-consumer side, and he is going to uh, persuade the House to pass legislation to finally close the payday lending loophole. Ohio voters, by a vote of two to one, margin of two to one, wanted payday lenders out of the state, and they wormed their way back into the loophole. Bill doesn't like it, and he's going to try to close it. Terry. Uh, in today's dispatch, they had a good article on state government looking at privatizing. It's not going to happen everywhere, whether it's liquor department or the turnpike, but I think you're going to see a lot more of it. Part of it's going to depend on right now the market's not been good because Wall Street's been a little pressured, but I think you're going to see a lot more pressure to privatize or the unions to come in with ways to innovate and save money. Julie. Uh, Evidence-based model of education is on its way out. We'll see a bill roll out and, and be debated at the state house that that uh, gets rid of, of a lot of the mandates that Strickland brought in. Thank you. Uh, gun, handgun checks, background checks for handgun sales in Ohio were up 65% the Monday after the Arizona shootings. That with the bill along with uh, bars and guns and bars, I think you're going to see a lot more uh, gun-related kinds of things coming up in this legislature. Okay. One more. My final thought. Other finalists for Columbus City Council didn't make it. Kevin Boyce, who withdrew. School board members Shauna Gibbs, outgoing state reps Marion Harris and Dan Stewart, and our own Michael Daniels. That would have made a heck of an election, don't you think? Look at the panel. Yeah. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. Please check us out online. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. You can connect to all of that at our website, WOSU.org, where you can get streaming video of each and every one of our shows. So for our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. <laughs>